Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On May 18th, 2017, Chris Cornell, singer for Soundgarden and Audio Slave, passed away in Detroit. He had one of the greatest voices in rock, and his passing marks the end of one of the bands who made grunge and alt-rock possible. Chris leaves behind a tremendous legacy, and with that in mind, we've pulled out this ongoing History of New Music show from the archives. This was originally broadcast on November 29th, 2015. There's a misconception that it takes a lot of people to come together to create a viable music scene. That's just not true. The original punk scene in New York consisted of a few dozen weirdos who hung out at places like CBGB, The Mud Club, and Max's Kansas City in the uglier end of town. The UK punk scene started with a similar number in the fall of 1976. Pretty much every London punk fit into a single club on Oxford Street for a two-night music festival. Capacity at the 100 Club was officially 350, but there was plenty of room to move around. The start of the English technopop scene focused around a few people who hung around the Blitz Club in Covent Garden. The same can be said for a dozen other scenes that resulted in sounds that eventually spread around the world. And that includes grunge. Grunge started with maybe a dozen people in and around Seattle. Really, that's it. But within a few years, it expanded to become the dominant sound of Western rock for much of the 90s and into the 2000s. To become this big in such a short period of time required a swift and steady chain reaction. Among those dozen or so people were artists who were not only to form successful bands, but multiple successful bands. And every one of these groups exploded with such a great force that it was enough to prompt other neighboring music fans to do the same. To prove my point, I would like to trace one of those chain reactions. And for the purposes of this show, we will call the singularity of this particular chain reaction Chris Cornell. A lesson in grunge physics is coming up. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. About 175 meters below the border of Switzerland and France lies the biggest and most complicated machine ever built, the Large Hadron Collider. Physicists use this thing to smash subatomic particles into each other at nearly the speed of light. When they hit each other, they send out a shower of even smaller particles, which are then analyzed for some clues as to the fundamental structure of matter in the universe itself. Now imagine that Chris Cornell is one of those proton bullets used in the Large Hadron Collider. We're going to rewind things to the beginning of the grunge explosion and see the elements of this chain reaction that were set off by Chris. It's, I guess, a different way of looking at the grunge family tree, and beyond, actually. But, you know, come to think of it, maybe maybe it's more like a six degrees of separation thing. Or maybe what we're doing is just hyperlinking back and forth through history. In any case, you'll get the hang of it in just a second. So much can be connected, and sometimes in weird and unexpected ways. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross. We start with an early 80s cover band called The Shimps. It was Chris and bass player Hiro Yamamoto. A guy named Kim Thale was brought in, and eventually the Shimps died out, but Chris, Kim, and Hero started jamming together. In 1984, they started calling themselves Soundgarden, with a drummer named Scott Sunquist. But he had a wife and child and couldn't commit to the band full-time, so he was replaced by Matt Cameron. Matt used to be in a band called Skinyard. That group featured two notable people. The first was Jack Endino. 
As well as playing in Skinyard, he had a local recording studio called Reciprocal Recording, whose clientele consisted of indie groups with very modest budgets. This included Green River, Screaming Trees, and some little band called Nirvana. The other guy of note in Skinyard was Daniel House. He'd been in an instrumental prog band with Matt Cameron called Feedback. While Jack ran his studio, Daniel started up a label called CZ Records. It was CZ that first issued the first proto-grunge compilation. It was called Deep Six, and it featured bands into this slower, sludgier, deeper flavor of punk rock, many of whom recorded their contributions with Jacket Reciprocal. And one of the groups featured on Deep Six was Matt's other band, Soundgarden, which featured, of course, Chris Cornell. From that compilation, this is called Heretic. Super early Soundgarden, with an 18-year-old Chris Cornell on lead vocals. Soundgarden, of course, went on to do some pretty cool things through two different acts in their career. But an early scene in the first act had some interesting repercussions. Chris had a roommate named Andrew Wood. Andrew was the singer in Mother Love Bone, a local band that really seemed to be going places fast. They had evolved out of Malfunction, a group featuring a dude named Greg Gilmore, who, for a time, had been in Skin Yard with Jack and Dino and Daniel House. In November 1988, Mother Love Bone became one of the first of what would be a long line of Seattle bands to nail a major label record deal. A debut EP was well-received, so an album was recorded. That record was called Apple, and it was set for release on March 20th, 1990. But just four days before that could happen... This was Friday, March the 16th. Andrew Wood's girlfriend found him in his apartment completely comatose. He had been getting deeper and deeper into heroin and had OD'd. An ambulance was called and Andrew was rushed to hospital. But when they took a look at his brain activity, there was none. So with no hope, his family asked that Andrew be taken off life support and he died on Monday, March 19th, the day before Apple was supposed to come out. Andrew was a really popular guy, and he had lots of friends in Seattle. His death hit Chris Cornell, his old roommate, particularly hard. Andrew died the day Chris got back from a long tour with Soundgarden. A few days after the funeral, Chris and Soundgarden headed out on a European tour. And while on the road, Chris started writing some songs in tribute to his old friend. When he got back to Seattle, he showed the surviving members of Mother Love Bone the songs. When other materials started flowing, they decided to record a quickie tribute album under the name Temple of the Dog. The group featured Chris and Matt Cameron, two guys from Mother Love Bone, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, and this kid from San Diego who had just flown up at the invitation of Jeff and Stone to sing in a new band that was going to be called Mookie Blaylock, and that kid's name was Eddie Vedder. Eddie was just kind of hanging around, you know, waiting for Stone and Jeff to do their thing with Chris so he could rehearse with them and Mookie Blaylock. But in the midst of Chris recording the vocals for the song that we're about to hear, Eddie just picked up a mic and started singing the low parts. Nobody really asked him to do it. He just kind of did it. Crazy new kid. Who do you think he was? The Temple of the Dog album was recorded in just 15 days and released on April 16, 1991. It got great reviews, but nobody paid much attention. Until Mookie Blaylock changed their name to Pearl Jam and, uh, well, you know that story. But when this song was recorded in November of 1990, not a lot of people knew who Soundgarden was. And no one knew who Pearl Jam was because they didn't exist yet. 
Who would have guessed that the two guys duetting on this track dedicated to the singer of an obscure Seattle rock band would become two of the biggest dudes in rock? Temple of the Dog, featuring Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder on vocals. Instrumentation by Matt Cameron of Soundgarden and later Pearl Jam. And Jeff Ament, Stone Gossard, and Mike McCready. In other words, 50% of Soundgarden and 100% of what would be Pearl Jam in the future. That record was totally ignored by everyone when it first came out, except a bunch of critics. But when Soundgarden and Pearl Jam blew up, the record went multi-platinum all over the world. Now, let's hyperlink back to Chris Cornell and Soundgarden. In 1989, there was a lineup change when bass player Hiro Yamamoto quit to finish his master's degree in physical chemistry. Between classes, he'd played in a band called Truly, which featured a couple of members of the Screaming Trees, one of those bands who recorded with Jack and Dino at Reciprocal Recording. Hiro's replacement in Soundgarden was a guy named Jason Everman. He had been the second guitarist in Nirvana for a while when the band toured behind their Bleach album, and you may remember the story of how Jason paid the $606.17 recording fee for Bleach to Jack and Dino at Reciprocal. He never played on the album, but was given fake credit on the record for his financial generosity. What wasn't fake was his time playing in Nirvana for a few months, but his personality didn't prove to be a very good fit, and he was soon out of the band. He lasted from February to July of 1989. When the Soundgarden bass player job became available, he auditioned and got it. So here he is, Jason Everman, playing on Soundgarden's cover of the Beatles' Come Together. Soundgarden covering the Beatles and featuring Jason Everman, formerly Nirvana's best friend and financial benefactor on bass. Jason didn't last very long in Soundgarden either and was eventually replaced by Ben Shepard. Ben had been around Seattle for years, once playing in a band called March of Crimes, which briefly featured a teenage guitarist named Stone Gossard. At this point, he was playing in a band called Tick Dolly Row with a cook named Chad Channing. One of Chad's friends introduced him to Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, and he became Nirvana's drummer for a while. So that was it for TikTok Dolly, but Ben Shepard didn't mind, because he freelanced as Nirvana's roadie for a while. In the period leading up to the release of Nevermind, Ben was asked to be the second guitarist in Nirvana, doing essentially what Jason Everman had been asked to do the year before. But like Jason, he was ejected from the band when Kurt wanted to keep it a three-piece. But that was still okay because he auditioned for Soundgarden again and got the job, and he still has that job today. See what I'm talking about? This crazy hyperlinking from our Chris Cornell starting point? We'll do more of this coming up in a second. Let's see where we can get to from Audio Slave. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is a special rebroadcast of the ongoing history of new music as we look at the legacy of Chris Cornell. The show was originally broadcast on November 29th, 2015. We're tracking all the particle interactions of the career of Chris Cornell to show how small the world really can be. I know I said this was going to be a six degrees of separation thing, but you can see that it's more like two or three degrees, maybe. Soundgarden broke up on April 9th, 1997 with an official announcement, making Chris a free agent. He had a backlog of material, and the following year he started working on a solo album. Helping him was a guy named Elaine Johannes. 
when he was a teenager, he was in a band called Anthem with two other kids from L.A. One was named Flea, and the other was Hillel Slovak. And when Anthem broke up, those two guys would form the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Later, Elaine and a friend named Natasha Schneider formed a group called Eleven, which at one point had a drummer named Jack Irons. Jack would later join the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a bit, and he worked with Pearl Jam when Matt Cameron went off with Soundgarden. Through his associations with Chris, who knew Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament and Mike McCready, Jack received a cassette tape, which he was asked to pass along to any promising young singer. It just so happened that Jack played basketball with this surfer kid from San Diego named Eddie Vedder. Eddie had a pretty good voice, so Jack gave Eddie this cassette, who then wrote some lyrics and dubbed his singing onto the tape and then mailed it back to Stone, Jeff, and Mike in Seattle. That's what got him the gig in Mookie Blaylock, which of course became Pearl Jam. Networking, baby. It's important. But back to the band Eleven with Alan and Natasha. Chris relied on both of them to help produce his debut solo record, Euphoria Morning, which came out in 1999. This was the album's only single. Solo Chris Cornell from his 1999 album Euphoria Morning, produced by Elaine Johannes and Natasha Schneider of the band Eleven, who, based on this work, got producing gigs for No Doubt and Josh Homme in the early days of his Desert Session projects, which brought them into contact with members of A Perfect Circle, Nine Inch Nails, Danzig, Weed, Marilyn Manson's band, and PJ Harvey. Now, linking back to Chris Cornell. Euphoria Morning was something of a sales disappointment, and Chris didn't know what he should do next. But by the time he returned from a seven-month solo tour, Rage Against the Machine had imploded. Well, wait, that's not entirely correct. One quarter of Rage had imploded. Singer Zach De La Roca quit the band on October 18, 2000. And frankly, that was fine as far as the other three guys were concerned. They planned to stay together. All they needed to do was find a new singer. How hard could that be? They auditioned a bunch of people, including Be Real of Cypress Hill, but nothing really worked. Then producer Rick Rubin suggested that they ring up Chris Cornell. The chemistry was so instant that they wrote 21 songs in just 19 days. There was some awkwardness. Rage had one manager and Chris had another, but that was just administrative stuff, right? Well, the new group broke up before they played their first gig because the two managers started brawling and it looked like Rage Against the Machine version 2.0 was dead before it got a chance to do anything. It was then that 13 demos showed up online under the name Civilian. This was Rage Against the Machine with new singer Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell with Rage Against the Machine, not only before they released anything, but before they even had a name. Things with the managers were sorted out, with both being fired by their respective sides of the band, and another management group was brought in to take care of everything. One of the things they had to solve was which label this new group was to work for. A King Solomon sort of compromise was worked out. The first album would be released by both Epic, Rage Against the Machine's label, and Interscope, Chris's label. The second album would be Interscope only, and then the third album would be Interscope for the U.S. and Epic for the rest of the world. And what of a name? Like I said, it was originally going to be Rage Against the Machine. 
Then the whole civilian thing came up, but it turned out that that name was already taken. Then somebody suggested Audio Slave. Great, let's do that, they said. One tiny problem. There was already a group from Liverpool called Audio Slave. The managers rang them up and offered them $5,000 for their name. That seemed a little cheap, so they said no. And so the number went up and up and up. But since this was late October 2002, and the American Audio Slave album was set to be released in less than three weeks, the Liverpool Audio Slave knew they had the upper hand. In the end, they were paid $30,000 to go away. The Liverpool Audio Slave changed their name to The Most Terrifying Thing, and the American Audio Slave ended up releasing songs like this. Audio Slave from 2002, and the first single from their first of three albums. When we come back, one of the most difficult and then one of the most embarrassing hyperlinks that we can make with the Chris Cornell starting point. You'll see what I mean. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're back with the final segment of this special rebroadcast of the Ongoing History of New Music as we remember Chris Cornell. As a way of showing how small the music industry can be and how interconnected and, well, let's face it, incestuous it can really be, we've taken a starting point, in this case Chris Cornell, and hyperlinked all over the place from him. We don't need many clicks in order to go a very long, long way. Here is another tiny bit of separation, and it begins with Susan Silver. She is Chris's ex-wife. She is also the ex-manager of Soundgarden and Allison Chains. Silver got her start managing the U-Men, a Seattle group that predated the whole grunge thing by a couple of years in 1981. She picked up a few other clients, including the Screaming Trees, we've run across them before, while majoring in Chinese at the University of Washington before Soundgarden came along in 1986. She and Chris started dating, which probably had its awkward moments with the rest of the band, and then they got married in September of 1990. Okay, back up. One of Susan's friends was Kelly Curtis. He and his buddy Ken managed Alice in Chains. When Mother Lovebone started to get hot, Kelly wanted to spend more time with them. Meanwhile, Ken wanted out, so Susan and Kelly became co-managers of Alice in Chains through their own management company. When Mother Lovebone collapsed and turned into Pearl Jam, Kelly became their full-time manager, leaving Susan to deal with Alice in Chains. Her relationship with Chris lasted through the rise of Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, through Soundgarden's breakup, the first part of Chris's solo career, and the drug and alcohol addictions Chris went through in the early 2000s. Not to mention the total implosion and death of Alice in Chains singer Lane Staley. She and Chris divorced in 2004. Then it got weird. Chris sued Susan for a million dollars, claiming that she diverted Soundgarden royalties away from him and to the other three band members. Words like fraud, oppression, and malice were used in the documents. The suit also claimed that she was hanging on to certain items of significant value. Guitars, Grammy Awards, demo tapes, personal recordings, diaries, journals. So if you've ever wondered why it took so long for the Soundgarden reunion to come together, there's part of your answer. Bottom line, though, is that everything was eventually settled and both Susan and Chris have moved on and remarried. Susan created a new company called Atmosphere Artist Management in 2005, but it was shut down for some reason in 2011. Okay, so you got all that? Might as well hyperlink over to some Alice in Chains. That's just, what, two degrees of separation? Again, 
Continuing on from our connections to Chris Cornell. While there has been a Soundgarden reunion, Chris has also maintained a solo career, and we can make a lot of quick connections from that. In 2006, he got a job singing the title theme for the James Bond movie Casino Royale, so you could construct a very long chain from just that, linking Chris to everyone from Madonna to Paul McCartney, which is kind of cool. But this next hyperlink is not. For some reason unknown to anyone else in the universe, Chris decided to record an album with Timbaland, the hip-hop performer and producer. This is a guy who did records with Usher, Tupac, Lil' Kim, Missy Elliott, Snoop Dogg, All Saints, Boys to Men, Janet Jackson, TLC, Destiny's Child, and so many others, which is all fine. But why would a grunge guy think that working with an R&B rap and hip-hop guy would be such a good thing for his career? The result, which was called Scream, uh, how do we put this? Well, it was a commercial disappointment and more. Here's a bit of what we got when the album was released in the summer of 2008. point we can connect chris cornell to everyone from justin timberlake to beyonce to rihanna directly through his professional association with timbaland who produced that song hey you know what sometimes you take a risk and you win and sometimes it can blow up in your face but in chris's case he always had the Soundgarden legacy to fall back on that remains super strong and chris's solo career is also in great shape now He's toured the world several times on his own to great acclaim, and when he released his fourth solo record in September of 2015, got some great reviews. We can make a lot of hyperlinks from this project because of its producer, Brendan O'Brien. He's a guy that's worked from everyone from Pearl Jam to Billy Talent to Bruce Springsteen to ACDC. This was the first single from Higher Truth. Chris Cornell from his 2015 solo album, Higher Truth, and that's called Nearly Forgot My Broken Heart. See what I mean about the tiny number of people responsible for the creation and propagation of grunge? Everybody knew each other, worked with each other, played in bands with each other, did drugs with each other, slept with each other. And while we use Chris Cornell as our starting point for this degrees of separation exercise, we could have picked any of the other players that we encountered. So cool how we can connect all these things together like this, isn't it? Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Chris Cornell was 52 when he died, and I will remember him as having one of the greatest voices in rock ever. If you want to see what I mean, do a search for his isolated vocals on Black Hole Sun. They're on YouTube. The control, the breathing, the phrasing, it's just, wow. He will be missed. Thanks for listening. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.